welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of February the 3rd. Going to start covering a little bit about the HIMSS hype that's coming. HIMSS is March 9th. And you're going to start seeing the articles out there about all the wonderful things that are going to happen at HIMSS. Cover a little bit about that. Going to talk a little bit about the interoperability fight that's going on. Also, the class rankings came out. Epic happened to score very well. We'll talk about that. And a couple of articles out of Jamie I think we'll touch on if we have time. So let's start. First article out of Healthcare IT News by Bill Sawicki, January 31st. Trends at HIMSS 20. Microsoft points to cost of care access and clinician burnout. So I'm in a little bit of a contrarian mood today. Bear with me. I'm going to go through this article, some of which is just so, yeah, duh, we know all this. But also I'm going to point out where I disagree with a couple of things that they're saying here. So the first one, the cost of healthcare is rising. No kidding. In the U.S., healthcare represents almost 18% of the GDP. The federal government supports 50% of healthcare costs and costs to continue to rise. This is unsustainable. This is also not news. It's been around for at least 10 plus years, if not longer. But the change is slow because the reimbursement model continues to support more volume of care than value of care. And I haven't seen anyone with a plan to drastically change the payment model at scale across this country and have broad political support while doing it. We are just too polarized as a country. It's not going to change this year. I'm thinking that we're going to get more of the same. Dr. David Rue, his point of it's not sustainable, true, but it's also if it doesn't have legislation, it's not going to change. Now, having said all that, what are you doing as a CMIO or provider informaticist to change that, to reduce the cost of care. I'm going to suggest pick your projects carefully. Something that CMIOs don't always do well is to understand the financials and the economics behind the business. So you might pick a project that's not necessarily going to put you in good graces with the senior leadership team. So let's say you're looking at inpatient projects. Yeah, length of, reducing length of stay, reducing variation in care, Using clinical decision support to drive providers towards the highest quality, lowest cost options, all good ideas. That's going to get administrative support. In ambulatory, your system may not want you to reduce the number of MRIs, although from a value-based care proposition, advanced imaging is costly, and you may be all excited to say, gee, in back pain, we need to reduce the cost of care. But look at your market, look at your payment models. If you're in an independent medical group that's pursuing employer contracts, then definitely go after advanced imaging. If you are employed, though, by a large hospital system that has minimal Medicare Advantage or ACO patients, I'd consider going after pharmaceuticals rather than advanced imaging, because if you go after advanced imaging, you're going to be cutting into the bottom line of the hospital. The asset light strategy that people talk about is not something you can flip a switch and go to. These are 100-year-old healthcare institutions that have assets in place for decades and decades that need to be supported, and they're not going to move away from those MRIs and CAT scans so fast. So you're still focusing on the cost of care, but you're doing it in a way that won't 
gets you labeled as one of these uh, non-team player types. So moving on to the next thing in this article, they also talk about today a medical article is published every 30 seconds. There are 50 million medical publications and public databases and medical knowledge doubles every 73 days. At the same time, decisions are often influenced by cognitive bias and emotion. With so much data and so many complexities in the healthcare ecosystem, embracing new technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning is critical. And again, that's the same doctor from Microsoft talking there. And yes, all true, all good things. Keep in mind though, the level of accuracy that's required to do evidence-based real-time clinical decision support is very high. This tool cannot be wrong. So there's going to have to be clinical trials to move these forward and they're gonna be long and expensive. This is not a this year kind of thing that's gonna happen for the average provider, certain research institutions perhaps. So when they talk about this at HIMSS as AI is gonna be the greatest and most wonderful thing, in terms of it entering the clinical space for clinical decision support, I am optimistic about the future, but we're still just trying to get there. I don't think we're there yet. Let's see. With a growing shift towards value-based care, providers and systems are incentivized to enable access to care anywhere and anytime, Rue noted. Virtual healthcare visits are one way this can be accomplished, preventing a specific place-based visit and focusing on active surveillance with streamlined care coordination is the broader goal. Again, I, I don't know if I agree with him here, providers still get reimbursed at a higher rate for an in-clinic visit than with a telehealth visit. So look at your payment model. If reducing the number of visits makes sense, like you're in Kaiser, yes, that's a great idea. Take the lead on this, push it forward. But if not, steering patients to an online option only decreases your in-clinic volume. Be careful about the economics with that. So unless you are doing this to move into a new market, this can be a great offensive strategy for trying to take some business away from your competitor. Keep in mind, if you do that, they may very well do it back to you. So keep in mind your strategy and uh, game theory as you are looking at that. And then the last point they make here is that about burnout. And providers are having to deal with the administrative burden of providing justification for coverage, prior authorizations, and reimbursement. These and other factors are contributing to an epidemic level of caregiver burnout. And you've heard this a million times. And then they go on to quote that 54% of the docs are experiencing some form of professional burnout. And then he goes on to say that advanced technologies can help. For example, ambient clinical intelligence systems can help capture clinical conversations between clinicians and patients, integrate this information from patients' EHRs, and then automatically generate medical summaries. The result is more quality time for clinicians to spend with patients and less paperwork. So is this the year for ambient AI? Maybe, we've been hearing about it for a few years now and I think HIMSS will be loaded with these ambient AI solutions. It'll be interesting to see how they differentiate themselves from each other because they, they all are going to capture pieces of the conversation and generate a note. That's my understanding. So, well, let's see how they do that and how well it's done. The uh, challenge, of course, is going to be getting your system to adopt these things once the proof of concepts are out there and we know that this works. The uh, return on investment, unless you have scribes that you can fire and replace with ambient AI, then there's not a cost savings that happens here. You could say, oh, burnout will be reduced. 
maybe that's a soft ROI, and it's not even proven that ambient AI resolves burnout. I think that's a tough connection to make, but maybe I'll be proven wrong, and I hope I am. I hope that reducing the frustration of interacting with the EMR does help reduce burnout, but it's not going to fix the reimbursement model. It's not going to fix the fact that my patients have to pay a couple hundred dollars for insulin a month, and they can't do it. And then I get dinged for quality measures for not having my diabetics under control. And then the insurance company makes you go through 15 hoops for a prior authorization. Those kinds of things, I believe, are very prominent in burnout. The EHR sits right in front of our noses, so we love to blame it. We will point the finger at it. And by all means, it could be better. And maybe ambient AI makes it just a little bit better. So I'm hopeful. But... All right, I'm done being so negative. I'm going to move on to a different article. This one was interesting. It came out of uh, Mobile Health News, David Muyo, January 24, 2020. And it's about how theme parks have a lot to teach healthcare systems about patient experience. There's a book out there about what if Disney ran your healthcare system. That's a little controversial. I get the point the author's trying to make. Now, there's a lot of differences between healthcare and theme parks. But there are some similarities and there probably are some things that we can learn. So I'll read you a couple of lines from the article here. And then you could you could debate with me and blast me for saying that healthcare and the entertainment industry have something in common. But all right, so patient satisfaction is a laudable goal for any healthcare provider, but winning high quality ratings and patients' trust goes well beyond courteous staff and warm bedside manners. Consistent record-keeping, robust contingency plans, well-supported staff, and strong end-to-end engagement all play a role in crafting the ideal patient experience. And each of these components become harder and harder to handle with the greater size of a system's operations. So I interviewed Dr. Stephen Moran, I think it is. He's a chief medical officer at Centria Care. So he's quoted here, I went out from the world to find someone to help me with this stuff. I could not, as a CMO of a large national practice at the time, find in healthcare the competencies that I needed to succeed. No one could come to me and say, yes, we've taken on these challenges before. So I went searching and I found that, interesting enough, theme parks have many of the same challenges that healthcare has. Themed entertainment, resorts, destination retail, all these things try to create immersive, transformative experiences. I can't think of anything more immersive and transformative than an episode of healthcare. So then I think it is the next person quoted here, I think is his partner, Cynthia Sharp. Uh, Sharp explains that both healthcare and the entertainment industry here are required to handle large quantities of people, coordinate a diverse body of staff with various levels of education and background, and importantly, build trust among customers so that they may earn repeat business while imparting valuable knowledge. Healthcare, like a museum, a zoo, or an aquarium. Yeah, the zoo analogy bothers me a little bit. Who's, who are the animals in the cages? Is that the doctors or, or is that the patients? Either one is not good. Anyway, uh, they're in the game of informal education because we're trying to get patients, their families, their caregivers, their communities to learn and integrate some really challenging content. If I'm a parent and I'm terrified in a doctor's office with my two-year-old who's not breathing well and the doctor tells me your kid has asthma, we're expecting that parent to suddenly learn and assimilate and act on really complicated information. 
So I do find it interesting to look at the comparison between healthcare and the entertainment industry. I get those points. We do have, want to inform and we do want to educate and we want to do it with a certain level of uh, customer experience. You want your patients, not customers, patients to feel heard and valued. All great things to do. There is a company out there practicing excellence that I knew from my prior organization did a phenomenal job helping to educate providers and staff around what it takes to deliver a great customer experience. And it doesn't mean you're going to become Disney. We did do something, this was Centara Healthcare, where we were looking at that front of house, back of house analogy, where you design a clinic so that what the patient sees is one thing and what goes on behind the scenes is physically happening in an entirely different area. There were two entrances to an exam room. The one the patient comes through and the one the providers and staff come through is coming through from a back hallway. There's no supply closets with, with all the sample refills flowing out of it. And there's no pieces of paper flying all over the place from harried staff that have sticky notes all over their computers. It was really a beautiful design and I get it. It's that kind of environment that hopefully builds trust. Maybe the patients walk in and go, okay, these guys got their act together. I, I don't see all this clutter and disorganization and noise. It's really a very peaceful and well-run medical center. And that that is important. So I'm going to give this author here a, the benefit of the doubt. Say, yes, there is a connection and we should strive as CMIOs to help providers get there. Because we have the relationships with the providers and if their head's down in the EMR or if the technology is blocking their ability to provide that experience, we need to be involved to help break down those barriers. Next article, Healthcare IT News from Mike Miller, January 31st. 5G is here. How health systems can capitalize on the new cellular standard. This one came from an interview with AT&T's Global Director of Strategy and Innovation, and it's kind of cool here. They say they're going to have a booth at HIMSS where they will demo a 4G versus 5G plus speed test. And then when you see the results, you can appreciate what this will mean for areas such as telehealth and patient monitoring within the 5G plus footprint. Really, uh, it's a great article. I'll give you another quote that from the, from the AT&T gentleman who was interviewed, 5G will eventually change how healthcare workers and patients interact with the data created throughout the patient's journey. If you haven't listened to my interview with John Lee from a few weeks ago around 5G, it's worth listening to that segment and then coming back and reading this healthcare IT news article on 5G because you'll look at it with an entirely different lens. John totally opened my eyes and educated me about 5G. I had no idea. But some of the claims here being made by AT&T about it's going to revolutionize healthcare, and maybe it will one day, but this stuff doesn't go through walls. So it's not like you're walking around your healthcare facility and you're able to seamlessly capture data and interact with that data as you're walking around. And I don't know how that's going to work outside either where I'm at in Maryland, it's kind of rural and cell signal is variable in some areas. So how is 5G ever going to get here? It's going to be a while. They did mention something interesting. I'll read you another paragraph here that Rush System for Health in Chicago signed a trial agreement to bring the first standards based 5G enabled hospital to the United States. 
The vision is to create the hospital of the future and work is underway. 5G Plus will be utilized in parts of the hospital during the testing of various use cases to determine how 5G Plus's ultra-fast speeds and lower latency can bring to life the smart hospital. They're looking at large image file transfers, virtual visits with doctors, and artificial reality used in staff education and training. The large image file transfers they're talking about is being able to look at an MRI on your cell phone. Again, I'm not sure that transforms healthcare. You can walk over to the PAC system right now or any computer terminal and just pull up the MRI. So I'm not sure it's revolutionizing healthcare. I don't see the use case yet, but I'm optimistic, but it's going to be a while. I'm thrilled that AT&T is going to demo something at HIMSS. I'm also not expecting it to impact what I do in the next year, but I'm sure glad that I had that interview with John that I now know what's hype, what's real in this 5G conversation. And if you don't, I really encourage you to go back to that episode. All right, the class ratings came out. That's KLAS. Class is a research company. They're also a consulting company. And they gather opinions from thousands and thousands of people and, and in different categories. This was their EMR ranking. And for the 10th straight year, Epic won top marks for its acute care and ambulatory EHRs, also for application hosting, patient portal, and others. So I'll highlight a couple of other things that caught my eye on this list. Long-term care, point-click care is a name to know. I am seeing that very commonly in the market. Most of our long-term health care facilities in this area are on point-click care. And trying to get data from point-click care to Epic, I have not seen that integration happen Right, yeah, if you've got that, reach out to me. I need help with that. That would be wonderful to have. Next, patient intake management, a company called Freesia. That's P-H-R-E-E-S-I-A. And I, we're an Epic shop, so we're using all of Epic's intake management tools. But it'd be interesting to see if there's these third-party bolt-ons that can do it better. And if this interoperability thing actually happens, maybe third-party tools could be well integrated with our EMRs and be able to make the patient experience better because I, I'm not in love with the patient intake piece of Epic. Not always the most consumer friendly and some of my provider colleagues are very scared of it and it's slowing down adoption because of the inflexibility of the tool. How about this one, the speech recognition winner. That's uh, 3M's M Modal Fluency Direct. Not Dragon. I see more Dragon out there than Emodal, but interesting, Emodal got voted higher here. I think that's really, really interesting. And then value-based care managed services, Arcadia.io. If you've never, if you're in value-based care and you haven't heard of Arcadia, you, this is someone you do need to go talk to. Again, I don't work for them. There's no financial connection whatsoever. I've worked with them previously at a different healthcare institution and these guys rocked. They delivered an outstanding product and gave us great insights into our patient population. So I agree with class on that one. All right, this now, let's go to uh, Demia. This was an article about patient preferences for visualization of longitudinal patient reported outcomes data. So what they did, they wanted to get a feel from patients. What's the best way to look at data? And first they surveyed them and found out that most of them were not very data literate in terms of graph, understanding graphs and understanding the health literacy as well was low. So they got some feedback from them. And one of the things that people asked for were emojis. 
And they changed some other things like date and font formats and simplified the scales, the axes. Then they reevaluated, and 94.3% of people preferred reports with emojis and a bar graph combined with emojis. So that improved comprehension. I think it's fascinating. I do not have any emojis on the patient facing tools we provide them. We give them tables of data from Epic. Maybe there'll be some graphing. It tends to be line graphs. Bar graphs seem to be uh, preferred here. What an interesting study. If you are involved with data visualization around how to present this data to low health literacy and low data literacy people is really important stuff. Love this journal article. Jumping over to the apocalypse, which is coronavirus that's coming. So this one came out of Healthcare Dive and January 29th. The title here is After Past Ebola Struggles, U.S. Hospitals Preparing for Coronavirus Uptick. So hospital officials are preparing their organizations on how to quickly identify and treat any patient who may present with the 2019 novel coronavirus, an infectious disease affecting the respiratory tract that has spread from China to more than a dozen countries, including the United States. So if you haven't heard about this, you need to come out from underneath a rock because this thing's in the news and it's a significant epidemic in Asia right now and starting to make its way over. So the question is, is are, are you prepared? Are you doing travel screenings as patients are interacting with your facility to see if it's someone is coming from a certain province in China? At this point, I think if they have an upper respiratory infection, they're coming to see you from anywhere in China is something to notify your local health department about. So the article goes on to quote here that most hospitals believe they were ill-prepared for a potential Ebola outbreak when cases started to emerge in the U.S. in 2014. That was according to a 2018 OIG report. About 71% of hospital administrators reported that their facilities were unprepared to receive Ebola patients. However, that figure improved when administrators were asked again in 2017, and now only 14% they were unprepared. So it looks like we've learned our lesson, and we at our facility certainly are using some of the same tools that we were using for the Ebola outbreak that we continue to travel screen and have those pathways in place for what to do when a screen is positive. So just to uh, refresh your memory, the first patient in the United States came into Providence St. Joe and their executive director of system infection prevention is quoted as saying here that the system keeps up a level of preparedness in our facilities at all time. Drilling for high consequence disease happens routinely. And that is how to be prepared for something of this magnitude, is that you're always ready. You never know when one of those patients are gonna step off a plane and come into your area. Fortunately, it sounds like the federal government is corralling all incoming flights from China into certain airports where they can really get tight on the screening. So that may help reduce some of the variability in the process and also improve the quality. Keep your eye on that one. This one was also interesting out of Healthcare Dive. Codes for social determinants are rarely used, the analysis said. In the first two years that diagnosed a code specific to social determinants of health were available in Medicare fee-for-service claims that were used for only 1.4% of the total beneficiary population. That's from a new report from CMS. These are Z codes. They are first implemented in 2016, and there is a slight uptake, but still not a lot here. The unique beneficiary count for Z code use 
was 446,000 in 2016, and it went up to 467,000 in 2017. The most frequently used code was for homelessness, followed by problems related to living alone, disappearance and death of a family member, other specified problems related to psychosocial circumstances, and problems in relationship with spouse or partner. So despite the buzz around social determinants of health, the article goes on to say here that most providers don't ask their patients about social needs. A JAMA report published in September found a quarter of the hospitals and 16% of physician practices screened for all five factors CMS has prioritized, which is food insecurity, housing instability, utility needs, transportation needs, and interpersonal violence. So as a CMIO, what are you doing about that? It's probably in your EMR. Most of the EMR manufacturers have added the tools to capture it. But it's a workflow thing, and that's a challenge in terms of people have to feel comfortable asking the questions and then have the time to ask it. And then the bigger problem is, what I think really inhibits it, is we don't know what to do with the answer. Someone's homeless, now what? Well, there hopefully are some community resources for them, but more often than not, there, there isn't. And that's just a failure of the healthcare system. Hopefully your system is getting involved with what to do when the social determinant of health questionnaire is positive for something. Real challenge. And finally, let's talk about the ONC final rule here in interoperability. So the ONC has come out and said that providers won't be financially liable for info blocking in the ONC rule that's due to come out any day now. So here's a quote from Don Rucker, who leads uh, ONC. The final rule won't dive into penalties for providers. There will be future rulemaking on that, likely from multiple agencies and health and human services. The rule will not financially ding the health systems, physician offices, and other providers if their EHR or software system act as barriers to interoperability. This was news to assure key providers that feel that they're on the financial hook because of the functionality of the third-party EMR, which is something that we have discussed at our health system as well. We're doing the best we can. We're, we're trying to get the information to the patients, but if the EHR vendor isn't making that capability available, is that a problem? So this is reassuring information from the government to say, we're okay, still try to do our best to get patients their data because that's the right thing to do. Congress wanted providers to be treated differently than health IT companies when creating the 21st Century Cures Act. Shall be referred to the appropriate agency to be subject to appropriate disincentives using authorities under applicable federal law as the secretary sets forth through notice and comment rulemaking. So although you may not be financially penalized, I certainly do not want to be on the other end of what do they call this appropriate disincentives. Doesn't sound good. Because one of the tools in their toolkit, if they wanted to, is to toss you out of Medicare. And for most of us, that would be mean you're out of business. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Hope you all have and coming up this Thursday, look forward to hearing from Dr. Neil Chawla, who is the CMIO at Wake Med. Great interview. You'll really like that one. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Some of your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.